0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, we are talking about the British Empire, specifically the UK government's attempt to change the curriculum in order to introduce a what they call more balanced perspective, including the positive elements of empire as well as some of the negative ones. I talked to Kojo Karam, who teaches at the School of Law at Birkbeck College and is the author of the brilliant book, Uncommonwealth Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. So we talk about where this change comes from, what the government actually wants to do, and we also have a much broader discussion about who actually benefited from the days of formal empire, how formal empire kind of receded and changed into imperialism and neocolonialism, and why the right are so keen on keeping the culture wars alive while claiming that it's actually the left fighting all of these battles as always thank you so much to our patrons we couldn't keep bringing you the show without the support of our patrons so thank you so much to all of you who have supported us from the start and please if you haven't already consider signing up um, so we can continue to bring you the podcast uh, for years to come If you want to support the show in another way, please consider giving us a follow. We are at a world to win pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and share this episode and any other episodes that you particularly like on social media. And now a quick word from our sponsor before we take you to the main interview with Kojo Karam. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. I personally get all the books that the Left Book Club send out and I find them incredibly useful and really interesting just as a way to get a much broader um, set of uh, insights than I would ordinarily get if I was just buying books myself so I would really recommend it. Um, Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between 6 or 12 books a year. Plus there's author events and discounts from publishers including Pluto Press and our very own Tribune magazine. A World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all one word, at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week we are going to be discussing the news that the government wants to rewrite the curriculum to seek to include what they call a more balanced perspective on uh, the benefits as well as the negatives of the British Empire. And with me today to discuss this is the brilliant Kojo Karam, who has written extensively on this issue, including his most recent book, *Uncommonwealth: Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. We'll put a link to that in the description. Um so, Kojo, can we just start by talking about what the substance of this announcement is? What is the government actually proposing and how would it ta- change the way the empire is actually taught in schools?
1: First of all, thank you for having me, Grace. I think what we need to realise is that this particular proposal is part of a wider um, campaign by the government to try and move what they consider to be the culture in schools away from this identity politics and culture of victimization which they see the recent concern with things like decolonizing the curriculum that's being part and parcel of and so there's been this kind of narrative that's been presented we see people like the equalities minister coming bednock really leading on this we see the educations minister N- nadim um, zahawi really pushing on this as well the idea that um, in schools at the moment children are being browbeat with the imperial crimes of empire they're being made to feel guilty about their race and they're made to feel that britain has only ever done negative things in the world and this needs to be balanced out with a focus on the benefits of the British Empire gifted to so many people around the world in order to create a more harmonious educational environment. And I think that this is something that is not only part and parcel of the culture war that they say they're trying to move away from whilst actually reinforcing, it also is a real misreading of what the experience of people in schools around the question of empire has been, not only in the past, but right in the present. Rather than People being obsessed with learning about the crimes of the British Empire. The reality is, most people, both when we will have gone to school and kids going to school today, will go through their entire primary, secondary, even tertiary education without even encountering the details of the British Empire across any of their different subjects. You know, we actually learn next to nothing about it, and the recent Campaign for decolonizing the curriculum has been to try and bring that conversation into our educational spaces, not simply um, talk about the pros and the cons or the benefits and the positives of empire, like as though this is some kind of moral balancing act.
0: This is a really important point, isn't it? Um, I think it was. So it's the French historian, um, Renan, who talks about the importance of forgetting in forging a national identity. So, particularly in kind of former colonial powers, um, the importance of really just writing certain historical events out of history altogether. Um, And in the UK, we do this in general with Empire, but also closer to home, you know, British colonisation of Ireland. Um, I was in Wales not that long ago um, and a load of people were talking to me about how because the Welsh government has completely transformed the curriculum there to talk more about a kind of you know, oppression that was meted out on the Welsh people by Britain over the course of several hundred years, things like the, um, the, the crimes of the Blue Books and lots of particular events that really shaped the Welsh national identity. Um, and this is true, you know, obviously with the crimes committed by Britain all over the world. So these things become like really central parts of nationalist and, you know, often kind of progressive nationalist um, projects in formerly colonized countries. And yet they're completely eliminated from our understanding of what it means to be British. Obviously for a reason, because as you say, you know, if we are not learning about these things, the default assumption is that there's gonna be some positives and some negatives, like with anything, nothing is wholly bad. It's just the, the general assumption that we tend to make as human beings. So there's obviously a very clear political um, underpinning to the fact we don't learn about empire. Why, then, are the Tories bringing it up?
1: Um, well, I think they're bringing it up because they've been forced to by the um, the kind of public eruption of interest in this issue, really following the kind of Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and the pulling down of the Edward Colson statue, which served, I think, as a moment of rupture for this conversation, mm. but obviously wasn't the provocation for it. Um, you know, there's no reason, if we think about it, why the murder of a... Um, African-American man in Minneapolis would automatically manifest in a conversation about Britain's imperial history back here in the United Kingdom. I think what happened was that served as a moment to to, to unleash this long suppressed conversation, which the Tories and a lot of the establishment media have been trying to ignore and to forget and to erase for decades after decades. And so now that it's erupted back into the public sphere And there's all this discussion around, you know, decolonization of museums and decolonization of, um, you know, universities and decolonization of our public spaces. There has been this attempt to try and rework this conversation into another one of these kind of tiresome culture war issues. And so that's what I think is happening right now with the kind of conservative response to this. It's saying that, well, all people interested in these questions around Britain's imperial history. Aren't interested in the structure of this country, aren't interested in the way in which it might have informed our legal or our political or our financial institutions. All they're concerned about is, you know, stopping you watching Faulty Towers. That's what it's all about, you know. It's all about um, you know, making sure you can't sing Land of Hope and Glory. Did you want to sing Land of Hope and Glory? They don't want you to sing Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> That's what the conversation about decolonization is trying to be reduced to. And this Kind of proposal to well we're tired of hearing about the crimes of empire let's talk about the positives of empire is to again reinforce that culture war debate of positives versus negatives of moral judgment over the past rather than what i think was happening with the initial interest in these questions of empire which was try and think about how this history informs the structures that govern our society up until today and that's what i try to talk about in the commonwealth book a lot more is to try and not allow it to be separated from the material problems that people are facing today and i think that we're seeing that kind of bite the tories really kind of viciously um, over the last few weeks we can look at the, the 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 recent debate about Rishi Sunak's wife from the non-DOM status. Mm. Now, non-DOM as a tax policy was implemented as part of encouraging overseas imperialism to allow people to not have to... Um, face taxes on property that they'd accumulated in their colonial expeditions. And it also, and when it then became actually crystallized into the non-Dom rule in the early 20th century, was to encourage the return of those colonists from the from the outer posts of the empire into the United Kingdom by saying if you return home, you can continue to avoid property taxes and claims on your property that you own overseas. This is a concrete ac- example of Britain's imperial history that leads to some of the wealth inequalities and economic disparities that we wrestle with today. But you're not going to be able to get a Conservative minister to talk about the non-DOM rule. All of a sudden, they don't have anything to say if we talked about the non-DOM rule. If we wanted to talk about, yeah, faulty towers and, Mm -hmm. you know, should we have this particular statue of Winston Churchill? Jacob Rees-Mogg has a lot to say about that. But if you wanted to talk to Jacob Rees-Mogg about the British Overseas Territories, all of a sudden... He doesn't have anything to say about that, doesn't really want to have that conversation. And so I think in in conclusion, they still are trying to suppress the conversation. They're trying to suppress that material element of the conversation and they're trying to elevate this kind of culture war, moral argument that they can see as presenting itself as something that's very removed from the real life of everyday people.
0: I mean, in many ways, this point speaks to the wider... um question about kind of like what the British Empire actually was, because it was, you know, it's easy to forget. It was a huge undertaking that lasted in one form or another for like centuries. And it was the foundation of the industrial capitalism, which emerged in the UK and then spread around the world um, and went through, you know, lots of different changes from the kind of uh, more like mercantilist and corporatist version of the East India Company um, all the way through to the kind of developmentalist visions of the post-war period, um, what do you think we should actually be learning about when you know we learn about empire? Like, is there a way of actually summing up the massive undertaking that shaped you know so much of the way that not just the UK but also the entire world developed over the course of several centuries? Is this something that should just be like, because I mean, in many ways, you could teach the whole of history through the lens of the British Empire, I guess. So like, how should we be thinking about learning about these questions?
1: Yeah, well, I think that one way we could try and expand, but also um, kind of complicate our understandings of empire is by not just thinking about it from the disciplinary lens of history, but also thinking about how it impacts other disciplines that we study, whether we think about law, whether we think about citizenship, whether we think about our politics, whether we think about our constitutional system. You know, as you mentioned, the British Imperial Project is something that outdates Britain itself that we often think about, um, you know, the idea that Britain had an empire as though there was this um, concentrated and coherent nation-state called Britain that then decided to embark upon an imperial project, when the reality is that English imperialism outdates the Act of the Union, it outdates the Glorious Revolution, it even comes before the English Civil War, we're thinking about, you know, England's imperial relationship with the Virginia slave colonies or with Barbados or with Jamaica, that's before it has the Act of the Union that solidifies it as a nation state with Scotland. And so our constitutional system, our legal structures, all of these are produced in in convergence with the imperial project. And so it informs all of these different elements. And so that's something that I think that we need to learn about when we learn about the English constitutional system. You know, I have law students that I inform them that First of all, you know, the head of the state in the United Kingdom is also the head of the state in places like Jamaica or, you know, maybe not Jamaica very soon, but in Bermuda and a lot of other places. And, you know, they would be shocked. They would be flabbergasted. Wow, I didn't have no idea. We never learn about this in most of the constitutional law classes. We never learn that the highest court in a lot of these countries is also the Queen's Privy Council. That's still the highest court of the land as a hangover for British imperialism. You know, these are things that... Then come back to bite us when we see, you know, people like Kate and William going over to Jamaica and being like, "Wow, you know, people don't really want us to be the heads of state anymore." This appears to be a bit of a negative reaction, is because we don't learn about the way in which the structures that produce that current system um, continue to inform our world today. And so I think that we need to learn about it from a lot of different disciplinary perspectives, rather than try and summarise it in a nice, neat historical debate. We need to think about the way in which it informs things like our ideas of citizenship, of who constitutes being, uh, you know, a subject in this particular jurisdiction. Um, We need to learn about the reality that, you know, prior to 1948, there was no citizenship distinctions for people from the imperial metropole and the imperial colonies. And this has so much to do with the kind of changing boundaries of British citizenship, which inform crises like the recent Windrush scandal. uh, scandal. So many of those people were people who'd come over without requiring those evidences of citizenship because they were coming from the colonies and were seen as British subjects. And then when they went to get their pensions, you know, 60 years later, they're told to produce papers that wasn't necessary at the time of their arrival. And so all of these different dynamics, I think, uh, show the significance of learning about empire, not just to try and understand our past better, And not just to try and get a kind of moral um, position on what was good or what was bad about the past, which is what the Tories want to keep the conversation imprisoned within, is to try and understand the different structures that inform our economy, our legal system and our politics, even in 2022 and moving forward.
0: I mean, in many ways, what you've just described there and also the point you made earlier about how it's unclear as to why um, the kind of movement that emerged around Black Lives Matter should lead us onto a conversation about empire. It presents a kind of reckoning with the foundations of empire and with the kind of ideological justification for empire that was always questioned and queried and um, kind of you know discussed throughout the imperial project, which was there was this tension between Um, a fairly Manichean view of the world as divided into a kind of like civilized Christian West and a backward East. And of course, racial categories kind of layered over that. And then a more kind of, in inverted commas, liberal imperialist project, which was all about, you know, spreading the benefits of civilization to people all over the world who would once kind of incorporated into the empire, be able to act as citizens you know regardless of their race and you saw this particularly say in France for example uh, where there was that attempt to kind of you know expand the idea of citizenship but which always came up against those really embedded racial prejudices and those kind of yeah like um, black and white dichotomies around civilized uncivilized black white east west and we're kind of coming up against that question once again now and it was never resolved throughout the whole history of empire really was it? Um, that's kind of just an open question. I don't really know what my question is. I was just kind of interested to hear your thoughts on that.
1: No, I mean, I think that, you know, that relationship between the kind of commercial aspect of empire, which was the primary driver for empire, um, you know, when we think about, you know, why did people sail halfway across the world? It wasn't to introduce them to democracy. No one gets on a boat and says, oh, after six months of travel, I just wanted to share some, John Locke or Thomas Hobbes, with you. No, that's not the reason why you travel halfway across the world. It is to extract, accumulate, and transfer resources across borders. But in order to facilitate that extraction of wealth, the the language, the ideology of racism, the differentiation between human categories, um, and the dehumanization of particular people and disqualification of them from being able to claim sovereignty and therefore being able to claim property rights, being able to claim obligations in terms of contractual agreements that they then entered into with the imperialists. This was part of the enriching process. This was part of being able to accumulate those resources that were in Ghana or in Nigeria. Or in Jamaica, or in India, or in all of these other places that became part of Britain's global imperial network. And so I think that's something that we also need to think about in terms of the way we talk about empire on the, on the left, and and the way in which we might present it often as primarily a a, a project of racial um, discrimination, you know, that that was the main reason why people embarked on the imperial project, rather than thinking of the way in which racism facilitated that extraction of wealth and drove that extraction of those capitalist relationships that continue to inform the way in which wealth is distributed around the world up until today and so that's what i try and like retell a little bit of that story in 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 on commonwealth and also try and emphasize the way in which so much of that architecture of empire so much of the instruments of financial enrichment that were put in place by empire were well, what was protected during the process of formal decolonization in the 20th century, which allowed so much of the neoliberal backlash, so much of the erosion of democracy and entrenchment of the rights of capital that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. What, we happened, with, what happened with decolonization um, was really the giving back of sovereignty to the peoples of the colonies, but then watering down the value of that sovereignty vis-a-vis the power of private capital by allowing all of this different architecture of transnational capital to be what the political economist Quince Lobodian describes as being encased away from the democratic demands of these decolonized people and you don't have the kind of Skyrocketing wealth inequality that we've seen in the age of neoliberalism without having that encasement of capitalism from the democratic demands of the decolonial governments in that kind of mid 20th century period of decolonization.
0: This is a really interesting point because it picks up this broader question, which is kind of which underlies this point around, you know, the benefits and drawbacks of empire. The big question here is the benefits and drawbacks to whom? And there is this assumption that if empire benefited, the UK more in inverted commerce than it benefited the rest of the world, then it's a bad thing and vice versa, it's a good thing. And there's this live historical debate where historians and economists try to kind of measure the extent to which Britain benefited from its empire and like very narrow readings of this, which try and look at, you know, the amount that the UK spent maintaining its empire or trade surpluses and deficits kind of allow you to make the argument that actually this was a civilizing project and Britain didn't benefit from it at all. And then there are these, you know, brilliant um, uh, kind of political economists, people like Eric Williams, who come in and say, well, actually, you have to understand empire and slavery as part of this much broader system. He looks at the kind of triangular trade between the Americas, Africa and Europe. Um, There's, you know, people who look at the, as you've discussed, the much wider... Um, legal architecture of empire, how that continues to be used, the financial underpinnings of it that you've just talked about. How did Britain, do you think, actually benefit? And how did actually Britain's capitalist class? Because, of course, when we say how did we benefit from empire, you know, there's a difference between how workers and, you know, elites benefited. Although there is a case to be made, actually, that both in one way or another did gain some sort of surplus from it.
1: So, I think this is a really complex question, and that it's something that we want to try and engage with carefully when we're thinking about it both um, from pedagogical perspectives, educationally, and we're thinking about it politically as well. Because when we think about this debate around Brin's, benefit, you know, the benefit of empire that came to the United Kingdom, um, you know, it's undoubtedly. The elevation of living standards that happen in the United Kingdom, the infrastructure of the place, the um, way in which um, wealth accumulation was accelerated in the United Kingdom, was would have been impossible without the imperial framework that underpinned the transition of the United Kingdom into being an industrial power and then being the you know the the kind of financial lingua franca of the world all the way up until the end of the. The, you know, the 19th century, we can think about things like the sterling area, we can think about things like the way in which, yeah, you know, the pound sterling was the world's kind of global reserve currency. All of these are tied to the way in which empire elevated the United Kingdom as a particular economic power. And this massively benefited the capitalist class here in the United Kingdom, and also did have some benefits for, you know, working class people did you know, elevate a living standard of the United, of, of everyday working class people. But we also want to talk about when we're trying to, I think, move away from this kind of identity politics competition around the history of empire, also worthwhile speaking about the horrific treatment that happened to working class people in the United Kingdom as part of the imperial project. You know, people might not be familiar with things like the home child migration policy, where it was pretty much normal for um kind of liberal bourgeois institutions to seize children from pauper families and send them to Australia or Canada to have brutal lives in the new world as part of this you know this idea of you know spreading the white English nation across its borders this is something that's normal practice I don't think this is something that is is a benefit of of working class people to be seized away from your family and sent to some um, you know distant land overseas to be worked after death. And this is something that was going on up until the 1950s and some say even later. And so these kind of elements, I think, is worthwhile just exploding the idea that if people are criticizing the history, the violent history of the British Empire, that that means that they are automatically attacking working class people in Britain, which is the way that the Tories want it want to create that dividing line. They want to create a dividing line between people who are either concerned with histories of empire, and that means you're concerned with, you know, the interests of racial minorities and you're concerned with questions of identity, or you're concerned with the wealth inequality and the left behind, you know, the white working class, all of that kind of narrative. And I think that what I try and do a little bit in the book and further work is to try and show the way in which The histories of empire are also led to the erosion of living standards and the increasing economic inequality and insecurity that are being faced by so many communities, not just now in the former colonies, but also right here in the United Kingdom itself. I think a good way to kind of trace this shift is to think about the role of the welfare state. And so, you know, people like Gaminda Bambra have been excellent in showing how so much of the construction of the Atlee welfare state was funded and supported by the accumulation of imperial wealth you know taxes that were being uh, imposed upon populations of the colonies were able to increase the coffers and, and revenues here in the Westminster which was able to fund the welfare state obviously so much of the welfare state was actually populated by employees from Jamaica and Barbados and Nigeria and Ghana and India who were working in the hospitals and the trade services and all these all this new um, kind of infrastructure of social democracy. But at the same time that the Ali government were kind of establishing that, you could say something like its treatment of the Anglo-Iranian oil company in Iran and supporting them in opposition to someone like Mossadegh also laid the, um, laid the, the kind of a ticking time bomb underneath their own welfare state that allowed for it to erupt 30 or 40 years later. The way in which the attempt to try and impose social democracy in one country whilst allowing finance capital to run rampant in the colonies, which was the kind of modus operandi of the European welfare state, created a situation where 20 and 30 years later, we now see the fragmentation of the social safety net here in the United Kingdom. We now see a lot of the kind of inequalities and and economic insecurities that were normal in the global south becoming increasingly normal right here in the united kingdom as well and we see the erosion of living standards um, in the united kingdom and what i try and do is to tie that to the way in which at the time of the establishment of european social democracy there was an abandonment a forsaking of the interests of working-class people in the former colonies
0: Yeah, this kind of ties into this whole idea of the kind of the imperial boomerang. So this is mostly used to describe the way in which kind of um, often military and policing tactics that are used in the empire find their way back to the imperial core to be used against kind of working class populations. But it can also be used to describe the way in which, say, you know, because obviously the way that I think, you know, certainly I and many others talk about empire would be to say that it doesn't just end with the end of formal empire, it continues as, you know, what people like Nkrumah call neocolonialism, what Lenin, Bukhar and others call imperialism. Um, And one of those, one of the factors that underpins that is um, the imposition of, like, particular sets of um, norms and rules and um, conditionalities associated with lending, as well as, you know, just general unequal exchange at the level of the world economy. Um, and those, you know, rules and norms that are trialed first in the global south through structural adjustment, end up kind of boomeranging back through to, um, you know, the to states in the global north. And you see the same thing when it comes to the imposition of kind of capital, um, mobility and like all of these changes that are pushed through, uh, and that end up, as you say, like undermining um, the the social safety net that we have here in um, in the global north. Is there a boomerang effect when it comes to imperial or neo-colonial economic policy?
1: I think that you know when we're trying to trace the origins of so much of the austerity policy that has now become the norm in particularly the uk has been very much the cold face of this in terms of european nation states but we are seeing that spreading across so many other jurisdictions in the global north we cannot tell those stories without telling the history of what happened to the former colonial states following that period of formal decolonization we can't talk about you know austerity that was implemented in portugal and greece and the united kingdom after 2008 without thinking about the way in which that kind of, yeah, debt conditionality agreements and structural adjustment programs forced the mass privatization and the gutting of the social safety net that was tried to be put in place in the former colonies by people like Nkrummer and Mozadek and Manly in Jamaica. Those projects were gutted by the weaponization of finance capital in the 1970s and the 1980s. And so it's not surprising that then in the early 2000s and the 2010s and the 2020s, we're seeing that weaponization also being used on the global north. Um, you know, when I talk about the way in which the Atli government protected the interests of the Anglo Iranian oil company against the Mossadegh government in Iran, which was simply trying to do exactly what atley government had done right here in the United Kingdom. They were trying to use nationalized resources in order to fund health, education, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, welfare programs within their own jurisdiction. Instead of the Atlee government being like, oh, I kind of see what you're doing there, they went full in support of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, um, you know, and then eventually, once they were replaced by the Churchill government, a coup d'etat was supported that allowed for the defeat of the Mozadek project in Iran and the triumph of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, I say that that's almost like You know, somebody having like a beloved pet dog in the house who they say, well, we want you to behave while you're in the house. You know, we're creating this new social democratic welfare state in the house. And so you're going to have to behave and listen to the interests of the state when you're here. But when you go outside of the house, you know, you can do whatever you want by whoever you want. That's where you can run wild.
0: It also pretty much definitively answers that question, doesn't it, as to whether or not there were any benefits from from Empire? Because there was obviously no ideological reason that successive governments would want to prevent states in the global south from as you say doing a lot of the things that they were themselves doing at home there was clear kind of material interest for countries in the global north to forcefully open these countries up and to be able to extract from them basically absolutely
1: absolutely but once you'd empowered a kind of particularly vicious version of finance capital in the global south it's no surprise to see that now have that same that same, you know, issue is still having impacts and consequences in terms of our political economy right here in in the global north. Um, you know, we can look at the way in which, you know, who are the Anglo-Iranian oil company now, that's obviously mutated into BP. We can look at the way in which BP have been describing the recent energy crisis, according to their CEO, as an opportunity for them to become a cash machine, as they described, Um, whilst people obviously see their bills skyrocketing every month, without being able to ask the government to be able to, uh, you know, successfully leverage a windfall tax on, energy companies like bp who are profiting from this um the way in which bp have been protected in 2022 by the you know sunak and johnson government of today is part of the boomerang consequences of the way that they were protected by the adley government and the churchill government against iran in the 1950s and so we need to think about that history as not this distant history that happened to these far off people which maybe you might be interested in if you know you want to be a particularly good person or you want to have some sympathy for the poor people in the developing world and in the global south we need to start thinking about the history of what happened in Ghana in Jamaica in Iran in Singapore and all these other former parts of the british empire in the 20th century as key parts of understanding our own current political economic existence
0: one final question kojo because we've already gone over time and i mean we could literally talk about this for like hours um but the like one of the main reasons i guess that we're even having this conversation um and as you say the conservatives have been able to kind of frame anyone who criticizes the empire as attacking the british working class is that there is in a lot of you know the foundations of conservatism in many, way, in many ways is the kind of uncritical identification with the idea of the nation and anyone who identifies with being British is therefore you know invested in the idea that Britain is a good thing so that they can believe that they are a good person and leftists have always all you know said that this kind of uncritical identification with the nation is the opposite of class politics that we should be having kind of workers everywhere who have more in common with each other than they do with their domestic elites united against those domestic elites. Yet, also, we know that national identities have proved extremely enduring and have even become the foundation for progressive movements in some circles. Now, Raymond Williams, another, you know, Welsh um, socialist wrote, you know, he argued in in arguments about Welsh nationalism, that it's fine to have a form of progressive nationalism amongst oppressed and marginalised peoples who've been the subject of empire. But then again, if you look at Scottish... Um, ideas of kind of nationhood there's often that sense in which there's um, a forgetting around the involvement which was very heavy of Scottish elites in an empire so to what extent do you think we should be kind of um, attempting to build a, a movement that can facilitate progressive identification with the nation as some argue that we should do or should we be trying to kind of ditch that project in favor of Um, one that focuses much more on class?
1: Um, So I think that there's a couple questions that kind of get mixed up together when we think about these issues and so I think there is a question around the um, kind of focus and um, attention that we give to questions around the nation and patriotism when we think about um, basis for left-wing politics. Um, I think that's a Debate that's been going, you know, back and forth, like you say, from a Raymond Williams to a Stuart Hall, Um, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives upon the role of nationalism in left projects. For me, I tend to think that um, we don't really want to be making that the basis of our progressive politics. I think that there's always a danger with the language of nationhood. This is both within the global north aspect, but also the histories that we saw in the global south. This is another reason why I think it's so useful to learn about the projects of decolonization, because here we have um some of the most righteous manifestations of kind of national liberation politics of mobilizing the language of the nation in order to defeat you know violent and exclusionary um uh, colonial powers but that do have a history of reifying a certain authoritarianism of excluding other um, national identities of Uh, of, of often gutting some of the progressive potential of their projects, once they start to crystallize and calcify. And so I think that there is always a danger of making the language of the nation the basis for our progressive politics. And I tend to try and move away from that and to look at these more material aspects when we try and consider different ways in which we can challenge finance capital in 2022. But when I think we're talking about the British Empire, I think that we do have to try and separate these two things out because the collapse between a critical view on Britain's imperial history and Britain's imperial structures that maintain itself up until today and a critical look at Britain as a nation, Britain as a culture, Britain as people – that collapse is exactly what the Conservatives are trying to facilitate with this culture war around British imperial education. They want people to hear criticisms about the non-dom rule and think that that's attacking, you know, working-class people in Sunderland and South Shields and Blackpool, even though none of them have that relationship with them, you know, with with their particular tax status. They want to hear people criticise things like Britain has used its overseas territories, which, let's be honest, are nothing more than continuing outgrowth of its colonial past you know places like the cayman islands was governed as a colony with jamaica during the british empire only becomes a, a you know a bot after jamaica gets its independence and then it represents itself as this offshore financial center they want to hear people attacking the cayman islands and feel that that's attacking people you know in southport and in blackpool and all these other areas of the red wall of the left behind i think that when we actually focus on the specificity of britain's imperial legal and material structures then we start to bring about conversations around things that the conservatives and the british establishment know benefits them but the rest of the country is very unpopular you know offshoring is very unpopular outsourcing is very unpopular the role of london's commercial court is very unpopular if we actually you know the non-dom rule does not poll very well and so you can still have people who are real critics of British imperialism who do maintain a certain English patriotism or British patriotism, which you know isn't myself but you know I look at people like say, you know George Orwell for example, who you know in Burmese days writes one of the most searing critiques of the dehumanizing violence of Britain's imperial system and also talks about that um you know that material um, you know, impoverishment that was facilitated. You know, he has the the protagonist has that line where he says, "You know, the great lie we've told you is that we're here to uplift you, my black brother, rather than to rob you." And so he's very aware of the way in which the British Empire was about dehumanizing and taking resources from populations all around the world. But then we can also look at his writings in say, "The Lion and the Unicorn," where he has this romantic idea of a kind of English nationalism, you know, which might be tied back to, you know, your levelers and your de- diggers and the peasants' revolt and all that kind of trajectory. Um, that is in my politics, and I don't think that that should be our kind of North Star, but I think that we also need to recognise that when we are talking about the British Empire and its legacy in 2022, we're not talking about this culture war that Jacob rees mogg and Kemi baden want us to be having a conversation about. We're having a conversation about the way in which Britain's imperial history was part of the building blocks of global capitalism and a lot of the outgrowths, the aftermaths, the spectres of British imperialism that continue until 2022 inform so much of the economic inequality and insecurity that we wrestle with up until today.
0: Which is really, you know, the argument that I suppose that we end up going back to is, yes, we should kind of ditch these discussions around patriotism and really return the conversation to someone around class and material interests and um, you know the material underpinnings of empire and also racism and all of the other things that continue to maintain British capitalism to this day.
1: Well, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: <laughs> cool, sounds <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Um, We are completely out of time now. I've gone over because um, I had so much more that I wanted to ask you. But thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Kojo. And make sure you go out and buy his brilliant book, Uncommon Wealth. Thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Brilliant. Thanks for having me, guys.